Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Let's read verses 1 through 5 to set the context and ask the Lord for his blessing. This is the word of the living God. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice in the truth. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask this morning that you would be gracious to meet with us. We are your body, Lord, and we are a needy people. We need to hear from you, Lord. Would you please speak into our hearts well beyond what the hearing of the natural ear can capture? And would you transform us to be like your glorious Son? I thank you for your promise of faithfulness to be with us and never to depart us. Lord, for those of us who may not have spiritual sensibility this morning, would you open our ears and help us to hear? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we began our foray into Romans chapter 9. And what we saw at the very beginning of this chapter is that Paul is bearing his heart. He is bearing his heart in particular to his Jewish brethren because he knows that there are many who do not believe and, frankly, who do not trust him. And so he, before he gets into the doctrine of Romans 9, he wants to let them know that he loves them deeply. This is a heaviness of heart and a continual sorrow for his unbelieving brethren. And his statement in verse 3 is really profound. For I could wish, or I could keep on wishing that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Paul is saying, if there were a way that I myself could um, forego my salvation, which is extremely significant given where he just finished at Romans chapter 8, that salvation is eternally secure for God's elect. You can never lose it. But if there were a way that he could trade his eternal salvation and be cut off forever, be damned, be accursed from Christ, so that in his place, all his Jewish brethren after the flesh, his brothers and sisters by birth, the Jews, could be saved, he would make that exchange. And Paul says that because he has the heart of a mediator, and he really, more importantly, has the heart of God. This is the heart of the Lord. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, his call to those who are wicked and unbelieving is repent. Turn from your sin. Why would you die? Believe the Lord and live. Be blessed. And so Paul has bared his heart as he gets into what comes next. And in this heart of compassion is what drives what follows. Paul is now going to give us a description of his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he calls them. And he's going to enumerate their privileges, and there are many. There are eight privileges that he lists here in verses 4 and 5. And so for today, and probably and for next week as well, what I'd like to do by way of outline is just start by um, identifying who Paul is describing as these brethren in verse 4. And then we'll begin to describe these eight privileges that belong to Israel in verses 4 and 5. So come with me to verse 4. And reading into verse 4, he says, My countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. He starts by saying, who are Israelites? And it's interesting that Paul chooses that word because he's made reference to the Jew seven times in this letter to this point, but he has not once mentioned the word Israel until now. And so it begs the question, well, where did this name come from? What does this name Israel mean? And so I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. And we're going to see the origin of this name which has really filled the pages of Scripture. Exodus chapter 32. I'm sorry if I said Genesis. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 32. My dear wife is whispering in my ear. Love you, hon. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be in Exodus also. We're going to be in a few places today, so bear with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 32. And this is the account of Jacob wrestling with God that I'm sure you remember. Um, Look with me, starting here at verse 22. Genesis 32, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent, them over, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he, the angel, touched the socket of his, Jacob's hip, And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, the angel, said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men And have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. This is the account of when Jacob is renamed Israel, and this is the beginning of the word Israel throughout the scriptures. This word Israel is translated as prince with God, or simply as the text describes it, one who has struggled with God and men and prevailed. That is the meaning of Israel. And you say, how did Jacob struggle with men? Well, his life was one long struggle with men from the time he was even, before he was even born. When he was in the womb, he, as you remember, was a twin with his brother Esau. And the account is that he grabbed onto the heel of his brother as Esau was coming out first. And so his parents named him Jacob, literally heel snatcher. (laughs) Also translated deceiver. His life continues with struggle as he struggles with his father Isaac with regard to the blessing, as you remember, in Genesis 27. He struggles with his father-in-law, Laban, with regard to (laughs) who is it that I get to take home as my wife? Jacob, or excuse me, Rachel or Leah. And then he struggles with his wives in chapter 30. His life is one long struggle. And what about with God? When did he struggle with God? Well, in this particular account that we just read, when he wrestled with God, And what we learn is that God, as the angel, withstands Jacob as he's coming into the land of Israel, into the promised land. As if to say, Jacob, you are not going to pass into this promised land until you wrestle with me. And I want you to notice that it was the angel who initiated the wrestling with Jacob and not the other way around. Jacob wrestled with this angel because the angel took the initiative to wrestle with him. And they wrestled all night long. And the prophet Hosea in chapter 12 of his letter in verse 4 gives this interesting insight that Jacob not only wrestled with this angel, but he wept. 
and he sought favor from the angel with tears as they wrestled. So this was no mere physical, bodily wrestling, but this was a spiritual wrestling. And we see that Jacob struggling with God is struggling not as God's enemy, but as one who wants his blessing. He is seeking the blessing. He says, I will not let you go, in verse 26, unless you bless me. Jacob speaking to the angel. But the angel would not bless him until he first humbled him. And how did he do that? Well, he touched his hip socket. The place of Jacob's greatest strength in his hips. He touched it and he put it out of joint so that Jacob would know that he was a marked man by God and that he would never again walk in his own strength, but that every step of his life from then on would be a step of grace. Jacob, you're walking not in your strength anymore, but by my strength, because you wrestled with me and prevailed. So God marks his man, and then what does he do next? But he renames him. He changes his name from deceiver, Heel grabber, supplanter is another um, good synonym there. And he renames him Prince with God. One who has struggled, wrestled with God, and prevailed by God's grace. Did the angel let him win the wrestling match? Of course he did. This is God. So what I want you to see here is that this naming of Israel is not Jacob's natural birth name. This is a name that God gives him by grace. God chose to initiate the wrestling match with Jacob. So Israel is a name that reflects covenant. It's a name that reflects God's own relationship with his man with whom the man is allowed to prevail. What does that mean? Well, to prevail with God is to receive his blessing. To prevail with God is to enter into a relationship with him. Sinners are separated from God by birth, from birth, and by all the deeds that they do because God is holy. He cannot abide in the presence of sin. And so to bring a man into a relationship with him where he is drawn near is a pure act of grace. And that's all encompassed in this name, Israel. This is not an earthly name, in other words. This is a spiritual name. That's important to understand. This is a covenant spiritual name which defines God's relationship with his people in the purest sense. And all true Israelites are just like Jacob was. They know that they are deceivers, that they are proud, that they are supplanters and unfaithful. And yet they struggle with God because He, by His grace, initiates that struggle with you. They struggle with God for His blessing and they will not let Him go until they receive it. That is true of all Israel. Arthur Pink, in his excellent book titled The Divine Covenants, wrote this about Jacob. From this point onwards in the story as we just read it, The one to whom it was originally given, that is, his new name, became the man with the double name. Sometimes he is referred to as Jacob. At other times he is designated Israel. And this according as the flesh or the spirit, capital S spirit, was uppermost in him. That is a very insightful statement from our brother Arthur Pink, and I would commend each of you as you read the Old Testament, read it with that lens. Be mindful of that fact that God is speaking of Israel sometimes in a double sense, whether according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. And I want to give you some examples to consider this morning as to how God himself in his Scripture qualifies the word Israel with additional statements for clarity, both in the Old and New Testament. Psalm chapter 73, for example, this was our corporate reading. The very first verse, Psalm 73, verse 1. 
This is a psalm of Asaph. And he says, Truly, God is good to Israel. Notice this next phrase. To such as are pure in heart. That's a qualifying statement. The Israel he speaks of is those who are pure in heart. Is everyone pure in heart? No. Asaph is saying God is truly good to Israel. And the contrast, as you heard this morning with Brother Roy reading this wonderful passage, is Asaph um, nearly slips in his thinking. He is envious of the prosperity of the wicked as he considers the luxury and the ease of life that they have, the lack of pains, and even the fact that they go down to the grave not worrying about death, thinking that everything is fine. Asaph comes to the understanding, by God's grace, that that's all folly. And that transition point happens in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Whose end? The wicked. That of the wicked. Surely you, Lord, set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. When does that happen? That happens as soon as the wicked closes his or her eyes in death in this world and immediately finds himself in hell, in torment. It's an immediate destruction. It's a catastrophe. It's a slippery slope from which there is no return. And there is nothing there but a consumption with terror constantly. And I love how Asaph, by God's grace, comes back in his thinking and he says, my, my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I was like a dumb animal, unable to think spiritually. And then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. God is good to Israel. What's the privilege that Asaph recognizes that he and all true Israel have? They're continually with the Lord because he is with them. You uphold me by my right hand. Does that not speak of security and perseverance for the saints? You will guide me with your counsel. There's the wisdom of God to lead us throughout our lives. And afterward, receive me with glory. There's final salvation and great hope. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. What a statement. God is Asaph's greatest love. And that is true for all Israel. You, Lord, are the true desire, the one and only in our hearts. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That speaks of His strength being our strength and the inheritance that we have through him as our father. You see, God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. All of the luxury and the quote-unquote blessing of the wicked in this life pales in comparison with the blessing of the man who is in relationship with God, Israel. Isaiah chapter 41 Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, just one verse. Listen to this. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Here's another qualifying statement for Israel in Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Israel are those who serve the Lord. That's a very simple truth, but profound. If you don't serve the Lord... You're not Israel, even if you call yourself Israel. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. You want to know another description of Israel? They praise the Lord. And they praise Him not just with their lips. Does the Lord look upon the outward or the inward part of a man? The heart. He looks upon the heart. And so 
as Isaiah says, this people, referring to Israel in name, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This praise that God sees and looks for in his people emanates from a pure heart. When we come to Matthew chapter 15 in the New Testament, we have the account of the Syrophoenician woman. There's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 7. She's described as a a Greek or a Canaanite woman. She has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. This is Matthew 15, 21 and following. And we read this. And Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is a a most interesting account because you have this woman who is not a Hebrew by birth. She's not Jewish. She's not Israel. And she comes to the Lord in a posture of humility and desperation for her daughter to be healed. And Christ's response to this woman is, I was not sent except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stop there for just a moment. That tells us something important about Israel. He did not come to Israel in general, but he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who know that they're lost, those who know that they have departed from the Lord, and they sorrow because of their sin. Christ came for them. But that doesn't stop her persistence. She says, Lord, help me. Help me. Just a simple plea. And he continues and he gives a a, a word picture, an analogy. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she, by, by the grace of God, picks up on this word picture and very cleverly and with faith responds and says, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs, which is a reference to her and the non-Jewish people, the dogs. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She knew that there was a surplus, a bounty at the table of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. And he grants her petition. So this is extremely insightful because we learn that she, a Gentile, though not an Israelite by birth, proves herself to be a daughter of true Israel by her faith. By her faith in Christ. And Christ did indeed come for her because she is a lost sheep of the house of Israel. The true Israel. Matthew Henry in his commentary says of her, this Canaanite woman, She was a prince who had power with God and prevailed. She was Israel. Consider with me John chapter 1 and verse 47. This is when Jesus sees Nathanael, who is an Israelite. The account says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit or guile. Why did Jesus add the word indeed after Israelite? Why did he not just say, Behold, this is an Israelite? Was he pointing out that Nathanael was a real Jew based on how he appeared? Or was there something different about this Israelite that Jesus was noting? Namely, that there was no deceit in him. Because as we know, Jesus, as fully God, is able to read the hearts of men. He saw this Jew by birth coming to him, and he proclaims him to be a true Jew, 
an Israelite indeed, because of his nature, because he has no deceit in him. He is marked by holiness of heart. And that's what makes for the true Jew. We have a very similar idea in John chapter 8 and verse 31 when Jesus said, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, and you can put believed him in air quotes, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You see, Jesus makes a distinction between a disciple, one who follows Christ, and one who is a disciple indeed, one who continues to follow Christ. Disciples who do not abide in the word of God, who do not continue to obey the word and follow Jesus Christ as a pattern of life, are no disciples even though they may claim to be disciples. You see the parallel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18 is another example where Paul makes a distinction with regard to Israel. He just says this, Observe Israel after the flesh. Why would Paul do that? If all Israel is Israel, then what's the need for the distinction to say Israel after the flesh? Except if there is a fleshly Israel, an earthly Israel, those who are Israel by birth, and there is a spiritual Israel, those who are Israel by rebirth, birth from above, those who have faith. So, coming back to Romans chapter 9, why is it that Paul uses this name, Israelite, with regard to his brethren rather than Jews or Hebrews? Well, I hope that you're seeing it's a term that emphasizes a, a unique relationship with God. Those who are in covenant relationship with him. It's not an earthly name, but it's very much a spiritual name. See, there are those who call themselves Israel because they descend physically from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they're not necessarily true Israelites. There's a distinction that God makes. True Israelites are those who have faith, who have a pure heart. There are those who have been circumcised in heart, who believe the Word of God. There are those who follow the Lord as the pattern of their lives, and there are those who bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. You remember the parable, but they're all fruitful. And then he says this next. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. And before we get to adoption, I just have to make a quick comment on to whom pertains. Pertain in the New King James is inserted for clarity. The Greek simply says, to whom. The ESV reads, they are Israelites and to them belongs the adoption. The New American Standard reads, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. So in all of these cases, there's a pronoun that's used, which is whom. And there's a directionality to it. It's to whom, the way it's translated, to these Israelites belong these following eight privileges. What is so interesting here is the way this is reading is that Paul's Jewish brethren are Israelites to whom belong the following privileges. And the question that I asked myself as I thought about this is, is it true that these privileges all belong to Israel after the flesh? Because that's how he describes these people that he's thinking about coming off of verse 3. My countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belong the privileges. Are the privileges for Israel after the flesh is the question. And those who translate it as to whom seem to be indicating all of these things, the covenants, the promises are to this physical nation, this group of people. But what I found really interesting, and just looking at the Greek here, and I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but I know the basics. Um, what's interesting is that the case of the relative pronoun that's used, bear with me for just a second, it's a little bit technical, but I think it serves a good purpose. The case of the relative pronoun that's used here is the genitive case. And when you translate the genitive case, it's typically a case of possession. You would translate it of whom, not to whom. To whom is the, another case that's called the dative case. So all these translators translate as if the dative case is used here, but actually Paul's using the genitive case, of whom. So really the text would read, 
my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites of whom pertain the adoption. And that may not sound like much of a distinction, but if you understand from verse 6 where we're going next that not all Israel is Israel, that there is a group within Israel who are the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, then the promises and the covenants are not to the broader group in, 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 in the final sense, but they are to those within that group. It is of Israel. Within Israel is where you find these privileges targeted by God. And let's see how that bears out here. So the first privilege and the first point for today is the adoption. The adoption. This is the first great privilege that God granted to Israel. It's also translated as the adoption as sons. It's a word that we saw when we were in Romans 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And as you may remember from that sermon, the adoption of sons, or literally the standing of sons, is a legal act that declares somebody who's not your son by birth to be your son, legally, in every respect, with all the rights and privileges that pertain to sonship. And you may remember that that word, sonship, doesn't occur at all in the Old Testament, but the spirit of sonship is very much alive in the Old Testament. And we saw a couple of examples of Moses, who seems to have been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And we saw Mordecai, who, was brought, who brought up his cousin Esther as his own daughter. And then when we come to Exodus chapter 4, this is when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to deliver them. And he's going to send Moses with a message to Pharaoh to lead his people, Israel, out into the wilderness. And this is what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 4, verse 21 and following. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Israel is my son. This is the first time that God declares Israel to be his son as a whole nation. And you say, how is that an adoption? Well, because God declares Israel, who were not his natural sons by birth, to be his son. You might remember back to the Garden of Eden and to the creation account. Who was the first son of God on the earth? It was Adam. Adam. And why was he a son? This is important to understand. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Listen to what God says about cr the creation of Adam, or Adam and Eve. Then God said, Genesis 1, 26, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What I want you to notice is, God says, let us make man in our image, and according to our likeness. So, what makes Adam, and Adam and Eve, a son, is that they are made in the image and likeness of God. God is establishing from the very beginning of the scriptures that sonship, true sonship, is not biological. Sonship is based on nature, how one acts, how one images the Father. Adam's purpose, and you see it there in the creation mandate, was to have dominion over the creation that God had created, to be his vice regent on the earth who would act as God's representative, his king representative, and rule with equity the way that God does on the earth. Adam's job was to bear God's image perfectly in the earth. So when Adam sinned and he believed the lie of the serpent, question, who was he acting like? He certainly wasn't acting like God who is truthful. He was acting like the serpent who is called the father of lies, the devil. 
In effect, he was showing that he had become a son of the devil because he was following in the devil's steps. That he was not the true son of God that God called him to be. And everyone who is born from Adam bears Adam's image, his likeness, which also, by the way, is the likeness of the devil. Yes, we have the image of God stamped upon us still, but it has been badly marred. And the image that is showing forth most brightly now is this image of corruption. So what happens to all of Adam's sons who were born? They're all born bearing his image, that image of corruption. And all of the human race has been corrupted. So every son that is born from Adam, including Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you just go down the line. All of these sons of God are not the true Son of God because none of them images the Father perfectly. So when God adopts Israel as a nation here in Exodus 4, this is extremely significant because what he's saying is this group of people will bear my image and likeness to the nations. God chose them. He, just, he chose them because he wanted to. He set his love on a group of people And he chose that they would be the conduit through which he would show his attributes to the nations. They were to be the channel through which all the earth would be blessed. In what sense? That they would know God. And that God would bring them salvation through the example and the imaging of the Jewish nation, the Israelites. So this is a tremendous privilege that he gave to Israel and a responsibility. But I want you to notice what comes next in Exodus 4 verse 23. So I say to you, this is the rest of the statement that Moses is to give to Pharaoh. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's very important because it tells us about sonship. The true sons show that they're sons because they serve the Lord. Let my son go that he may serve me. It's interesting that God didn't call Israel sons while they were in bondage those 400 years in Egypt until this moment that he was ready to deliver them. That's when he calls them sons and it's related to this acting like the father. They were no longer going to act like Egypt and obey Pharaoh as their master, but they were going to come out under the headship of the Lord and obey him as father. That's why they are called a son. And son, just like Israelite, has a contrast. There are sons who are true sons and there are sons who are sons in name only. You may remember that our Lord distinguished these sons in the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the field is the world. In this parable, the field represents the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So there are two kinds of sons. One is a son of the kingdom who is good by nature. He is a good seed. That's because God has changed his nature to be good. And there are sons of the wicked one who are tares. In other words, they have a worthless nature. It's, It's not good for anything, but like chaff, fit to be burned in the fire. There are sons in name and sons in deed. There is Israelite in Israel in name and Israel in deed. And you have to ask, did the whole nation, when they came out under the direction of God through Moses, did they all serve the Lord perfectly when God led them into the wilderness? Did they image him as he called for? And the answer is no. You recall that that whole first generation, God killed because of unbelief, all save two. Joshua and Caleb. And what about when they took possession of the land in Canaan? Did they drive out the Canaanites completely as God had required them to and image him to the surrounding nations as a light, as a beacon? No. Sadly, we we see that they adopted the customs of the pagans, that they intermarried with their children and became even more condemned because they knew better. So was the whole nation his true son indeed? No. 
They weren't. And yet in God's mercy, though they were sinners, He pledges Himself to some of them. He gives some of them the gift of faith like Abraham that they would believe, and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers. He gives them faith to believe the Word of God and God reckons it to them. He counts it to them as righteousness. They were saved. But that's because He changed their hearts. He changed their nature to be that good seed. He changed their desires from hating sin to loving righteousness. Excuse me, from loving sin to loving righteousness. Hmm. And they became the true Israel. Israel in heart. Israel by rebirth. So it's to those Israelites within the broader nation who have the adoption as sons. The promise, excuse me, the privilege of the adoption does go to Israel. It goes out in a sense to all of them. But it, find it finds its home, its true identity in the real people of God within the broader group. The next privilege, the second privilege, and this is the one I want to stop with for today, is the glory. The glory. And the glory in Scripture is a big subject. It can mean honor. It can mean praise. It can mean exaltation. It can mean having a good opinion of somebody. But most notably, it is splendor or magnificence or excellence or brilliance. It's, it's associated with light, with bright light. And I want you to turn now to Exodus, <laughs> Exodus chapter 13. And I just want you to follow a trail with me as we survey some of the Old Testament together with regard to this privilege that God gave Israel with regard to the glory. Exodus chapter 13 and uh, verse 21, this is when uh, God has brought Israel out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness and they are approaching the Red Sea. Look at verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fi fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Well, what is this that we're reading here? What is this a description of, this pillar of cloud and uh, fire? Well, this is nothing other than a visible manifestation of the glory of God, of the invisible God. It was a, a confirmation that he was, in fact, leading his people and that he was with them. He was confirming his presence with his people. When we come to Exodus chapter 14 at the Red Sea, we read that the cloud that was leading them moved behind the camp of Israel because Israel was now up against the Red Sea with no place to go and the, Israelite, or the Egyptian army excuse me, is behind them. So the glory cloud moves behind Israel and provides a buffer, a separation between Israel and Egypt so that to Israel, God provides light, but to Egypt, he provides darkness through this cloud. He is protecting his people with his glory. When we come to Exodus chapter 19 and Israel is brought to Mount Sinai, the cloud is seen as descending on the mountain in fire, shrouding the mountain in smoke, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When we come to chapter 33 in Exodus, this is before the tabernacle is constructed. Moses pitched his own personal tent far outside the camp of Israel, and God graciously met with him and visibly demonstrated that by descending upon Moses' tent as he spoke with him face to face like a friend does. And Israel observed that glory cloud. They all saw it. Look at chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? Notice, Moses does not want to go into the promised land and lead the children there unless God goes with him. There is no heaven without the Lord. So we shall be separate. That is, by the distinction of having God's presence with them, we will be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Verse 17, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is it that God is um, demonstrating as his glory here? Moses asks, show me your glory. God had already shown him something of the glory, but Moses wanted more. That's an important commentary for the true believer. He's seen the glory of God and he craves it. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. You want to know what God's glory is? It's his attributes. It's all his goodness, which is all bound up in what he says, which what he calls my name. I will cause, excuse me, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That is his identity, who he is. And so now he begins to show the character that he has. My Grace, I will, have, I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he said, you cannot see my face, speaking to Moses, for no man shall see me and live. What character attribute does that describe for the Lord? His holiness. Moses is a sinful man. God is holy. That's part of his glory. Verse 21, and the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God is showing, I'm going to, I'm holy. You cannot look on my face directly. But I'm going to be gracious to you, Moses. And how does he do that? He puts him in the cleft of the rock and he covers him with his hand. Loved ones, who is the rock that all of us trust in, who is a stumbling stone for the unbeliever, but he is our foundation for those of us who believe? It's Christ. God puts Moses in Christ, so to speak, and covers him with his hand. And from that vantage point, he allows him to see something of his glory. It wasn't his face, it was his afterparts, his, his afterglow, as John MacArthur's put it, which I think is it's helpful to think about something of that. But God is showing his grace, his glory, his glory to Moses. Come down to chapter 34 and look at verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Again, the name of the Lord, his attributes. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God shows his glory to Moses in his attributes. And Moses worships God. He saw the visible manifestation of something of the glory of God, but he's learning about the glory of God as his attributes that he is gracious and compassionate and merciful, but he's also holy and he's just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. All of that taken together is his name and is his glory. It's important to understand as we think about the glory of God. And so God, as the story unfolds, he graciously leads Israel. He leads them through the wilderness, through the pillar of cloud and fire, And when the tabernacle is finally constructed, according to the precise specifications given Moses, 
the glory of God descends upon that tabernacle and descends in one particular location within the tabernacle, which is over the mercy seat. And you remember, in the tabernacle, you have the holy place, which is the first sanctuary room. And then you have the innermost room, which is called the Holy of Holies. And in there you have God's ark, this box that was overlaid in gold that contained the Ten Commandments and contained the manna that God gave as bread from heaven and also Aaron's rod that budded to show who was approved of God and who wasn't. And God is seen and heard from coming over this mercy seat, which is literally the lid of this box, where there are two cherubim, angels, facing each other with their wings covering the box, and the presence of the Lord was seen there. This is the the visible manifestation and the earthly representation of the heavenly throne. And it's there at that mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle blood once a year on the Day of Atonement to forgive the sins of the people. God was willing to show His mercy, but not at the expense of His justice. He has mercy for thousands, but it also requires the innocent blood of an animal, which shows there is a sacrifice coming, namely in His Son, that alone can take away sin. He is showing His glory in all these ways by leading the people by showing His compassion to forgive their sins through a substitutionary sacrifice. And we also see that this glory even operates in administering judgment as we see at Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. Right before the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all their company, He descended upon the tabernacle of meeting. For judgment. So again, his glory is seen in all of his attributes. The tragedy of Israel is that though they had seen all these things, these great things with their eyes, from the time of their deliverance in Exodus, uh, coming out of Egypt, seeing the ten plagues, seeing the Lord part the Red Sea and bring them across on dry land while he drowned the massive host of the Egyptian army. And then seeing how he provided for all their needs in the wilderness with shoes that didn't wear out and with bread from heaven and with water from a rock. (laughs) He sustained them and showed the miraculous to their eyes time and time again. And yet for all that, they didn't believe. And you say, how is that possible? And Deuteronomy chapter 29 gives us the answer. Deuteronomy 29 Verse 2, Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet, verse 4, the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. How is it that they could see and witness the miraculous God working His glory on display before them and be blind to it? Because God had not given them a heart to understand. They saw something of the glory, but they were not affected with it. They carried on with their lives superficially because they had never been humbled by God. That's an important testimony. This glory is later identified with the Ark of the Covenant when Israel goes to battle against the Philistines. And you remember the account in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Israel is allowed to lose to the Philistines and they lose 4,000 men that day. <clears throat> and God uses that as a test for His people. Will you come to me and seek counsel of me or will you rely on your own strength? And as, as the, the narrative unfolds, sadly, they rely on their own strength and they conceive a plan where they will just bring the box, the, the ark, and place it in their midst in their camp and they will trust that that action will be enough to conquer the Philistines. And God allows them to lose 30,000 men of Israel because of their presumption and their pride. 
And then the saddest account comes in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, when the high priest Eli heard about the defeat of Israel, and he heard about his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, being killed. And he falls off his chair, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. And when his daughter-in-law, who is about to give birth, hears that her father-in-law is dead, and her husband, she goes into birth prematurely, and she dies. But before she dies, she gives birth to a child, and she names him Ichabod, which means no glory. Because the ark had departed from Israel, the glory that was associated with the ark left the people. And that was a very low point in Israel's history. But by God's grace, he brings the glory back. And when Solomon constructs the, temp the temple, God fills his, his glory in the temple once again. No longer the tabernacle, a portable tent, but now this, this physical building, this constructed building. He fills the temple. But then when you get to Ezekiel chapter 10, that glory departs the temple again. Why is the glory coming and going and coming and going? What is God trying to teach Israel? but that God cannot abide with sinful man. He will not remain long-term with a sinful group of people. He's holy, and the sin problem must be dealt with. They must become His true people in order for the glory to remain with them. And what we're going to see next time, Lord willing, as we look at the covenants, is that Part of the new covenant promise, one of the new covenant promises is God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The glory is no longer going to depart from true Israel. The glory will remain with them. And brothers and sisters, do we know something of this glory this morning? In the face of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, he is the declaration of the Father, the one who, who exegetes the Father, who proclaims Him with all His glory and truth. Jesus Christ, the glory of God. He is the one that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 60 when he said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen over you. For the unbeliever... The glory cloud provides darkness over the camp of Egypt and over all who have hardened hearts of unbelief. But for God's precious elect, his beloved, that glory cloud in Christ, who is the glory cloud, provides great light. His light shines on us and then reflects off of us, actually from our hearts out to the world so that they would see the image of God as God intended it from the beginning. That's what God's doing. He's restoring humanity and bringing glory to his name by drawing us to himself, calling us true Israel, where we will never depart from him because he will never depart from us. A lot more next time, Lord willing, but I um, just want to encourage you this morning. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the true adoption that is spoken about that was referenced to the entire nation of Israel. It's been realized for you because Christ himself is the true son. And by the way, he's the true Israel. I didn't have time to go into it this morning to show the connection. But if you look at Matthew 2.15, which is an account of when the angel calls Joseph, Jesus' father, and Mary and the little child, the young child, to come out of Egypt because Herod had died. He was no longer pursuing Jesus' life. Out of Egypt I called my son, is what Matthew references from Hosea 11, verse 1. And that comes back to Exodus chapter 4, when God names Israel my son. So Jesus is the true Israel. We are true sons in him. That's the connection. Lots more to come. May the Lord bless it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, in the face of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given us the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which shines now out of our hearts where darkness used to dwell. Lord, we, we've come to wrestle with you
because you graciously have engaged us in that grappling match and you've shown us our sin. You've shown us that we are deceitful and not truth-tellers and not pure in heart. And Father, you've caused us to grieve and to mourn over our sin. And even more so, Lord, as we grow in relationship with you. And Father, you've graciously pointed us to your mercy and your mercy seat where the blood of a precious lamb was spilt for us. And because of that, you have forgiven us all our sins and brought us into relationship with yourself and placed on us your very name and the adoption of sons and are manifesting your glory to us in a way that will never depart but actually only grow. Father, who are we that you should pay any attention to us, let alone show us such grace? I pray that each of us, Lord, would worship you more deeply as we consider these truths, that praise would come not just from our lips but from our hearts, and that our lives would be lived fruitfully for you, Lord. You know our weaknesses and you know our struggles. You know that apart from you, we can do nothing. You said so. And yet your spirit is mighty, is life, is the same power that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. And he is at work in us. Lord, forgive us for how little we think of your spirit and your great power and your kindness toward us to lead us as you do through the wilderness of this life. Father, help us to trust you more this week. Help us to encourage each other in these things. Help us to be in prayer for those who are lost and blinded, that you would open the blindness of their hearts and eyes, that they too would rejoice with us. In Jesus' name, amen.